coming up on Philosophy Talk. Allow myself to introduce myself. What is a self? What is myself if not me? I ask myself that question every moment of every day. Is the self the you looking for the me in the one? My mother, uh, she isn't quite herself today. Is the self the same as the soul? Sometimes I think you say things just to hear yourself talk. What do you want me to do, ignore myself? Is there really such a thing as a self? Our guest is Janan Ismail, author of The Situated Self. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that started Philosopher's Corner at Stanford. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy. And today we're asking, what is a self? Well, that's easy, Ken. I'm a self. You're a self. Every living, breathing, thinking human being is a self. I, I, I wish it were as easy as you say, John, but I have to admit I find the self much more elusive than you're letting on. The self is something hidden, something inner. Look, when somebody looks at me and sees my body, they might see a certain living, breathing human being, as you put it, but they don't see myself. Well, I think you're mystery-mongering. Ask yourself who I'm talking about when I talk about myself, when I use the word I. Answer, none other than John Perry. Who are you talking about when you talk about yourself? None other than Ken Taylor. Yourself isn't something hidden and inner. Yourself is just you. And I think you're playing word games, John. Uh, You've got a point about reflexive pronouns like myself, yourself, and the pronoun I, but I'm asking a metaphysical question, a hard metaphysical question. What exactly is a self? Well... If we're going to do hard metaphysics, let's start by making some distinctions. I think there's three different concepts. Some people think they all are concepts of the same thing, but we ought to keep them separate. There's the concept of self, what the word I stands for, the concept of mind, that's clearly closely related, and the concept of the soul. That's a religious concept. Well, look, I definitely grok. I mean, I get the concept of the mind. The mind is the seat of sensations, perceptions, beliefs, desires, intentions, consciousness, all that stuff. And there's obviously a connection between mind and self, because no mind means no self. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily go the other way around, because having a mind doesn't automatically mean you you have a self. Uh, Having a self requires self-awareness. There can be minds without any self-awareness at all. Think of ants. They have minds, but they're not self-aware. Well, it's certainly correct that self-awareness is one of the distinctive hallmarks of the human self. Given that you don't like my theory, though, what is it you think that we're aware of when we're self-aware? Well, 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 you said mind, self, and soul. It sounds like you're trying to set me up to say, oh, it's the soul that we're aware of when we're self-aware. Really, John? Do you really believe that? Well, uh, do I believe you think that? I think that's what you're being driven to. Now, the soul is that mysterious thing that survives death and ends up in heaven or hell. It's a theological concept. 
And I think that's where you are heading when you're insisting that the self isn't me, the person, but some elusive inner thing that can't quite be pinned down. Well, look, I definitely believe in the self, but I have to say I don't believe in souls at all. So so what are you saying that makes me uh, confused? Well, it, it makes you not very religious, and it also makes you anti-Cartesian. Descartes thought the mind was just the soul, the Christian soul, and that the soul was just the self. That's where his famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, argument comes in. What am I, he asked. That is, what's myself? A thinking immaterial substance, he answered. That is, my mind. It's this thinking immaterial substance that I refer to that, that, that the word I stands for when I use it. It's this substance I'm aware of when I'm self-aware. So this thinking immaterial thing is my soul, myself, and my mind all at once. Uh, that seems to me to just make a hash of things, a total hash of things. You got a better idea? Maybe you're willing to follow Hume, who said that whenever he looks within for the self, he can't find anything that fits the right description to be a self. What he finds instead is merely a bundle of thoughts and sensations in constant flux. So he finds no enduring self to tie the bundle together. Jeez, I don't know. That's pretty extreme. I admit I find the self elusive, but Hume yeah, goes way too far. And look, it's one thing to deny that the self is a Cartesian, immaterial, immortal soul. It's another thing entirely to deny the very existence of the self. So you don't like my theory. You don't like Descartes. You don't like Hume. Maybe Kant is more to your liking. He partially agrees with Hume that we can never directly experience the self. But unlike Hume, Kant believes there's something that ties this bundle that Hume finds together, a sort of an invisible belt. It ties together what would otherwise just be a loose bundle, and he calls that the transcendental self. Oh, God, but Kant's transcendental self, that's worse than Hume's immaterial soul. I mean, at least Hume's immaterial soul is part of the causal order. The transcendental self is, sits totally outside nature, totally outside the causal order, and then to boot, we, we can never be directly aware of it. That's just an abstract philosophical posit, not a concrete reality. Myself is a concrete reality, so I don't buy that Kant stuff at all. Well, now you've rejected so many traditional philosophical views about the self, maybe you're more open to the newfangled theory we began with. That is, my theory. Myself is just me, the live human being, sitting here before you, somewhat perplexed by your resistance to accept my wonderful well, view. Well, i got to say I'm not quite there quite yet, John. But, you know, I am willing to admit that we philosophers, maybe excluding you, but we philosophers <laughs> have made quite a mess of the concept of the self. Well, there's certainly a lot to think about here. And to that end, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, in search of a very rare kind of self, one whose brain has been surgically split. She files this report. Before her brain surgery, Valerie Jagger's life was at the mercy of devastating seizures. Her husband, Tim, remembers one time Valerie was taking their daughter to school. She had a really bad seizure and fell and fractured her skull and went deaf in her right ear. So that was the last time she... Then we had to pay someone, of course, to take our, our daughter to school for, for a few years. Tim says Valerie would have hundreds of drop seizures a month. She's had many injuries, a concussion, she's deaf in her right ear, fractured skull, burns, broken limbs. All kinds of terrible things happened to her over, over the years. So Valerie decided to undergo a rare and invasive brain surgery to stop the seizures by severing the corpus callosum, the bundle of fibers connecting the left and right hemispheres. And the surgery worked. 
I don't fall anymore. Richard Ivory teaches psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley. He explains seizures tend to start on one side of the brain, then spread across the whole cortex. If you actually cut the primary communication between the two hemispheres, you would basically not allow that seizure activity to develop. But cutting the corpus callosum also means the left and right hemispheres cannot share the information they receive from the outside world. The brain is cross-wired, so things coming in on presented to the right side of space are processed by the left hemisphere, and opposite, things presented in the left side of space are processed in the right hemisphere. And when the two sides cannot communicate, there are side effects. I set the table twice. <laughs> I, took, I took things out of the cupboard. Um, like a cup, two instead of a one, no. Or she would put the cup down with her left hand and set up the table and the right hand would come around and to pick everything up and put it away. We were just roaring with laughter about this. It, it went away after a while, but we had to laugh. We couldn't cry, we had to laugh, you know, it was so funny. It was almost as if Valerie's hands each had a life of its own. Professor Ivory says there are similar examples in textbooks, like this one woman. Kept unbuttoning her blouse with the left hand, and then the right hand would reach over and button the blouse up, and the left hand would, you know, do the strip tease again, and, you, you know, the two hands would start slapping each other. The procedure has been around since the 1940s, but it was always considered a last resort. And today, it's rarely done, if it's done at all. So Valerie became a bit of a celebrity. She was studied by scientists from all over the world. She was interviewed by journalists. There were articles about her in the local paper. You enjoyed that attention. <laughs> I said, I had to admit, I didn't do it. Her husband, Tim, says it was amazing to watch Valerie during experiments. He recalls one time when researchers blocked her vision of her hands. And they'd set like a key, in, a set of keys in front of her. Her left hand would reach in and touch the keys and she says, those are keys, what are keys? And then they would put like a tennis ball in and she'd reach in and go, I know what it is, but I can't say the name. Which was teaching them that one side of the brain had the memory of the name and the other side of the brain had the memory of what the object was. But since it couldn't communicate, she couldn't connect until she saw it. And they were floored. People like Valerie show there's no central director in our bodies or our brains, according to Professor Ivory. Each hemisphere, in a sense, has its own private life going on in these individuals. And there isn't that coherence. There's the coherence of a common goal, in a sense. But actually how that gets translated into an action, they seem to be operating almost as two independent brains. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Thanks, Caitlin, and thanks to Valerie, or to both Valerie's, as the case may be. I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosophy, along with himself, Ken Taylor. And today we're exploring the nature of the self. I look, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. I, I'm going to uh, go back to your newfangled theory of the self. I just want you to explain that to me just a tiny bit, because I didn't get it, really. You say, the self is just me. Well, then, that's, what am I? You don't have an answer that question. Well, I think you're a person, and I think most persons are just live human beings, although, you know, there are some outlying cases uh, uh, but I think this case of the of the split brain actually is a good one for my theory, because the interesting thing about split brain patients uh, isn't how they behave in these experimental conditions. It's that for most of their lives, for most things, they do just fine. Matter of fact, although I don't have seizures, for all I know, I have a split brain. 
I'm not very good at the things like buttoning shirts and playing the piano that people with split brains have difficulty with. Most of the people with split brains, after a little while, like Valerie, developed the ability to communicate between hemispheres by what's called ipsilateral feedback. We're joined now by Janan Ismail. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona, and she's author of The Situated Self. Janan, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. Hi, Janan. Good to have you back. Good to have you audible. You're best known as a philosopher of science, in fact, a philosopher of physics. You've been on the show before to help us understand that arcane, mysterious discipline and the problems it raises for philosophy. But today, you're here to talk about the self. How did you get interested in the self? It's one of the very natural topic in some ways for a philosopher of physics, because if you take seriously and literally that physics tells us about the way the world is, and you think of yourself as a part of the world, then there's a question about how exactly you fit into nature. And I think, sort of on reflection, I think a lot of my work has centered on those parts of our world, uh, of the worldview of physics, where the shoe really pinches for someone who take seriously and literally the idea that physics is the full and final story. Because I think the self really does pose a very kind of pressing problem for, for that sort of view. Well, well, before maybe we plunge into the self, let's push it a bit further. Traditional theology seems to need a self that can be a soul, something that survives death so it can be punished or rewarded. A lot of what philosophers have written, like Descartes, had in mind this need of theology. Is that view of the self pretty antithetical to a naturalistic worldview, or is there some hope for the soul in the face of science? Depends what you mean by a soul. I mean, I think that there is a naturalistic conception of self that does answer to many of the things that people mean when they talk about the soul. So I like to think of the self as an inner point of view. And when that's spelled out enough, I think it really does capture a large part of what people mean by the soul. Well, Not everything. But. Well, the soul was supposed to be, though, an inner immaterial substance that was like the container of thought and consciousness and could survive the death of the body and all that. I mean, is there room really in a naturalistic uh, point of view for those aspects of soul? I mean, if the soul was supposed to be the self, I can... The nature makes room for the self, but not understood as a Cartesian immaterial soul, does it? Not an immaterial soul, no. I mean, I think there is the notion of the self as an inner locus of mental life, distinct from brain and body. And I think that's not too badly wrong. Where we do go wrong is when we go from this, from the conception of self as a kind of locus of mental life, to the idea of an inner object, or as Descartes says, and as you mentioned, a substance that is a mental particular, something that we expect to see lodged somewhere in the brain, receiving signals coming in through the senses and making decisions and carrying out actions. I think there's no such thing as that, but we can, be, we can rescue a large part of what's important about our conception of ourselves without that. Well, we're gonna. That's a really good thought. I, I think that's a really good thought, and that's the thought I want us to dig into uh, more in our next segment. You're listening to Philosophy Talk today. We're asking, "What is a self?" Our guest is Janan Ismail from the University of Arizona. In the next segment, we'll look at what thinkers who say there really is no self—that the self is just a fiction, a story we tell ourselves to make us think we're more than just change in flux. We'll look at such philosophers and some other theories too. 
Soul, Selves, Minds, and Molecules. When Philosophy Talk continues. Me, myself, and I, the Holy Trinity of the Self. I'm John Perry. I don't know who myself is. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and today we're questioning the nature of the self. Our guest is Janan Ismail. She's author of The Situated Self. Jeanette, just for the sake of argument, for let's deny the existence of a Cartesian immortal immaterial self. Let's just set that aside for the moment. Now, you were, we were starting to talk about this toward the end of the last segment, but I want to know what's left once we deny that for the self to be if there are no souls. I think um, the self is something like an inner point of view. I mean, we all have a decent what we have now i think in cognitive science is a pretty good understanding of how an inner point of view arises how information from the various sensory modalities gets integrated and synthesized into a conception of the world as viewed from a particular location and through multiple sensory modalities and then i think when we build that up into we we combine memory we let memory get into the picture and then reflective processes um, we begin to get a pretty decent emergent understanding from a coalition of not just cognitive science and psychology, but all of the sciences of, of the mind, of how it is that over the course of a life, um, a conception of oneself first as a kind of perceiver and agent and a locus of sensory motor activity, but then more as an autobiographical subject, something with a history, a character, a personality, a thing with values, hopes, ambitions, how all of this kind of takes shape, acquiring more definite content. But, um, but, but Janan, that, that, sounds, that sounds contradictory to me. You, you say the self is an inner point of view. I don't know what the word inner is doing there. I would say the self has a point of view. And then you, you, know, you say the self is the perceiver and agent. Well, the perceiver and agent isn't inside me. The perceiver and agent is just me. What is this inner stuff? I guess I think of inner just meaning introspectively accessible. So what's special about the human mind is not just that we experience the world from a point of view, as you say, but that we can think about ourselves as owners of a point of view, that is, making ourselves not just subjects but objects of thought. But then ourselves is the owner of the point of view, not the point of view, right? I think that's right. But now, but wait a minute. If the self is the owner of the point of view, it sounds like we got a box within a box within a box because I don't see how that's different from the Cartesian ego. The Cartesian ego is the stopping point where the agent, where the thinker, where the, you know, that is the agent, that stopping point that can have a point of view on the world. We can distinguish one agent's point, but there has to be something that has that point of view, and that's that inner somewhat. But it sounds to me like you kind of want to have your cake and eat it too. Like you want to have an inner somewhat of a Cartesian kind, but deny that it's Cartesian. Is, is that, would that be fair? That is fair, but I don't think it's—I uh, it, don't think it's that mysterious. So, the way that I like to approach the issue is to think first about not what the self is, but start by asking how the notion of a self arises. So now you tell the story about the emergence of an inner point of view, meaning just a kind of 
point of view in the in the formal sense of a conception of a place from which the world is viewed and then you build that up by allowing the point of view reflexive access to itself and then you see how a mind that's representing not just the world but representing itself that is a mind that loops back and represents itself, gets the idea well, of an inner locus of consciousness. And then you say the self just is the point of view. Well, right, right now, I'm, I'm feeling my shoe with my big toe on my right foot. Thanks, that's, Scott. <laughs> that's, a, that's, about, that's about three feet from my eyes. My eyes are, are looking at Ken, which uh, is really more interesting than... Uh, than my shoe. My hand is on my computer. So what I'm experiencing isn't something inside me. It's a number of things that that circumscribe a volume. And what they all seem to have in in, in common is, is, is the position of my body. So my perspective doesn't seem to be inside me. It seems to be the perspective of the place occupied by my body. So why is the self inner? It's, a, it's inner only in the sense that it's introspectively accessible, meaning it sees itself. So here's the way to picture it. Start with what you were doing, which is describing the content of your experience of the world. So you start with, and think of that as a kind of a camera that's representing a scene from a particular point of view in it. But now think of turning the camera around and somehow managing to capture itself in the frame. Now, ordinary cameras can't do that. If you want to capture one camera inside the frame, you have to use another camera. But the human mind can do that. That's what Descartes did when he went from thinking about the world to asking, what is this thing that thinks? That's that reflexive act of consciousness, that, that it's in that reflexive act of consciousness that the notion of, of, of a self arises. Okay. And the essence of the self in that sense is to be aware of itself. I, th- I think I agree with you, and I think I disagree with John, but maybe the disagreement's merely verbal, right? But, but, let, me tr- but l- let me remind our listeners first that you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the nature of the self. But, Janana, I, I, let me see if I get you, if I grok you, as I used to say in the, in the, in the 70s. Uh, I think of the self as, to be a self, I don't think of the self as a thing, I mean, if it isn't anything, I think John's right. It's just me. But what is it to be a self? To be a self, I think, is just to be a creature capable of a certain kind of thing, what I call self-representation. It's to be a creature capable of I thoughts. And self-representations are really important kinds of represent. There are lots of representations in our head. There's representation of the room, of the light, of the pressure on my skin. There's all kinds of thoughts about this, that, or the other thing. But here's something that I can do. I can claim those representations as mine by saying, I think that uh, the, 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 the room is lovely. I think that John has a puzzled look on his fa- face. So this capacity for I thoughts, for self-representation, to have that capacity, I think there's nothing else to being a self except to have that capacity. Now, the cool thing is to think about what self-representations are, what their distinctive character as representations are. And that's where I think you're going. But I don't know if you, you and I are agreeing or disagreeing or what. Tell, tell me what you think. I think that's almost exactly right. But I think, you know, people use the notion of a self in all kinds of different ways. So if you start with the notion that 
with the question that Descartes started with, without any preconceptions about what a self is. What Descartes actually said was, what is this I? And by I, he said he meant that thing whose existence is made known to me in the very act of trying to deny that it exists. So in that very thin sense, where the self is just that thing whose existence is made known to me in trying to deny that it exists, then I think in that sense, the self just is a self-representer. Right. So, well, John, no, how do you think feel about that? How do you feel about that? Well, I agree. The self is a self-representer, but what is the self-representer? Let's, let's think about, I mean, here I think Kant has a point that you guys are missing. When I introspect, there is an introspector and that which is introspected. Now, the introspector is an agent. Uh, now, Descartes or Kant may convince themselves that that agent can't be a full-blooded human being with a body, but I'm not convinced. I think that I, the live human body, has the ability to perceive things on the outside and also to introspect. But when I introspect, what I find is just what Hume found. I don't find a self. I find thoughts, sensations, and all sorts of other things. But who's the I that's discovering those? I just don't see any choice but that the self is me. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But Kant, you're missing another of Kant's points, right? I dismissed Kant in the beginning, but Kant, because this transcendental part of the self, I think, is hui. But there's something deep that Kant said about the self. To have a self is just to have the capacity to attach what he called the I think to every one of one's thought. You know, I think that vibe. That's all it is to, to have this capacity to attach the I think. I think he's almost well, exactly right about yeah, he's that. Yeah, almost exactly right. Could be. But you're missing. <laughs> there is having a conception of the self, and there is the thing that has the conception of the self. A self is not a conception of a self. A conception of a self is something that certain kinds of selves have, and it's very interesting, but you don't want to confuse the conception of the self or the point of view that you can come to have if you have a conception of the self from the self, which is just you. Okay, Janan, you want to get in here. You want to refute John, right? Well, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I think there's one way of understanding Kant um, in which when he says that the self is a purely formal object and the unity of the self is a purely formal unity. So there's a way of thinking that, look, you describe how it is that a mind generates a point of view, and then you think of the unity of the point of view as kind of constituted by that reflexive act of consciousness. Right. So, I mean, cognitive scientists looking behind the scenes know that the unity isn't illusory, it's the product of a kind of integration that happens mostly below the level of consciousness. But because it's given at the level of consciousness, that is, by the time you are engaging in a kind of reflexive mental action, right, the self is, as it were, its unity, both at and over time, is presupposed in every act of perception and memory. Right. Look, look, I, I just, I think we've got a, uh, we all agree about something, and there's something we disagree about. And I think it's worth... Uh, uh, highlighting the thing about which we agree. Because I think it's a really big and deep and important thing in sort of nature's designs of minds that at some point it struck on the idea that we I could design a mind. I'm personifying nature, right? And, but at some point nature, not God, but nature said, I can design a mind that has this amazing capacity for self 
representation. And self-representations are really cool things that enable human beings to do all kinds of amazing things, like narrate their history as their history, like plan their future as their future, like distinguish the boundaries of my being from the boundaries of your being. So, because I have all these, I say, there's a thought that the that this is a good show in the air. Like, whose thought is that? It's not just a disembodied thought. It's I represent it as my thought. And all that and the capacity to do that, I think, is just a huge step forward in mind design. Don't you both agree with that, at least? Well, <laughs> hard to disagree with, uh, with such pious thoughts. But <laughs> this unity, what is this unity? It's not a mysterious unity like Kant thought. Uh, it's the unity of the brain, the central nervous system, and the body. That's the unity that we have through time and at a time. So we don't need no, to. It's we a, don't need it's all more this than mystery that. mongering it's not, to it's, explain it's more the than unity. That. It's more than that. It's it's a unity. I, I sometimes like to talk, think of about it as a narrative unity. It's because it's it's not just look human beings. It turns out according to some neural and cognitive scientists I know, are the only creatures that we know of who represent their lives as continually unfolding over time. So they represent the past as their past. They they anticipate a future as their future. And they represent always where they are on this timeline that stretches from back to the past, through the past, and outward toward the future, they hope. We're the only kind of creatures that have that capacity. And because of that, we engage in all kinds of planning and activity and normativity that no other creatures do. What do you think about that, Janelle? I think that's right. I actually have a question for John, because one of the ways in which people have brought out the difference between the kind of unity you're talking about, Ken, and the kind of unity that I think that John recognizes and thinks is sufficient for the self is by talking about systems like ant colonies or termite colonies. So these are systems that they have lots of parts, and the parts are each, you know, sort of marching to their own little drum. That is, they're just interact. They're just reacting to their own environments. But they exhibit a kind of unity that allows them to sort of, you know, do things that look on the surface like goal goal directed behavior. So ant colonies search out food, and they, they, you know, sort of marshal their resources to find, um, find to, to battle other, other colonies and things like that. But they don't have a genuine internal point of view in the sense that, that Ken and I are talking about. Many cognitive psychologists think that our minds are like that, and um, some of them don't. I don't, and I don't think Ken does. But I'm wondering about you, John. Do you think that we, that our minds are more like ant colonies than these sort of things that are unified by an internal metacognitive standpoint that acts as a, a kind of center for its activities? Uh, probably if I had a, to answer that yes or no, I'd say yes. That is, I think our minds are uh, less unified than people think. Uh, I think all of us are more like the split-brain patient or even like the multiple personality uh, patient than we usually think. Uh, and, but we, we, do have, we do have this ability to construct a narrative history and uh, a kind of a viewpoint at a time uh, that ant colonies don't need and that actually people don't need. Uh, lots of people get by without narrative histories and without being very introspective. A lot of what we do by introspection, the split brain patient has to do with ipsilateral feedback. But yeah, in the end, uh, you make a good distinction. And empirically, my my guess is that that our inner selves are a little less unified. Uh, I think 
and a little more like ant colonies than you and Ken believe. Wait, so, I mean, I think maybe you're attributing, certainly to me and maybe to Ken also, more than we meant to say. There's a happy medium here, which recognizes that this sort of, you know, this, this unifying standpoint is rather a late appearance on the scene, and it's not responsible for most of our day-to-day activities. But you might think, and, and this is what I think, that um, it isn't until that sort of late unifying standpoint comes on the scene that we have something that begins to be recognizable as a soul, um, an inner point of view, and that, in fact, you know, a lot of our day-to-day mental activity is engaged in this sort of attempt to unify the various parts of ourselves, what, whether it's by re-representing our histories and trying to form some sort of narrative, coherent narrative out of the different parts of the self, whether it's by, by forming sort of, you know, explicitly held values and goals and desires that will sort of, you know, gather our activities and bring them under a unifying standpoint. I think those things are compatible. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the nature of the self. Danan Ismail from the University of Arizona is with us. In our next segment, we'll see if science can really do without a concept of self. We'll ask again, is the self just an illusion? What kind of illusion? Or no illusion at all? Have advancements in modern science, especially advances in the science of brain and cognition, undermine the very idea of an enduring self? Toward a selfless science? When Philosophy Talk continues. Does spending time alone necessarily mean spending time alone, or is yourself always there with you? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Janan Ismail, author of The Situated Self. And John, you have a retort to Janan Yeah, I was so anxious to give it. I screwed up our, our opening. But Janan, uh, I want to respond to, to, to your view uh, that you attribute to Ken, too, maybe, maybe correctly. You guys are both impressed by something that seems to me uh, not necessary to having a self. That's the kind of things that philosophers and novelists do. We, we invent a narrative. Uh, we spend a lot of time introspecting. Uh, maybe we even, uh, what impresses Tom Nagel, take other points of view. We have an objective self. Maybe we do what I used to do a lot in college, which is meditate till you have an out-of-body experience. That's all very interesting stuff, but I don't think that's necessary to be a self. Uh, I think that's interesting things we we do uh, uh, because we are very complicated beings that can do them. But I, I think the person who does them is inventing a narrative about the history of a live human body and discovering things about what a live human body can do. And I think you can be a live human body, have introspection, have a self-concept without being such a sophisticated, philosophical uh, thinker as yourself. So I think you have a somewhat elitist conception of the self, just to put a nasty name to it. Cheapers. What do you think of that today? I think that might be right. But the way that I... I mean, the way that I started the inquiry um, was with Descartes. You know, when Descartes said, I want to know what I am, he said, 
what is this, what, what do I mean by I? By I, I mean that thing, whatever it is, whose existence is made known to me in mm-hmm. the act of trying to deny that it exists. In that sense, I think it really is essential to the notion of a self that you have this kind of reflexive grasp. But I think there's something maybe more to say, too, which is a lot of the stuff that you thought was dispensable to the self. It's certainly dispensable to there being a living, breathing human body that does a lot of what we do, including exhibit goal-directed activity. And um, But I think a lot of the most interesting stuff about the self, certainly a lot of the stuff that's most characteristically human, really does attach to what you're calling the elitist uh, element. I don't want you, I don't, I'm not willing to concede that, because I think every single human being is faced with the problem of who, who shall I be? What have I been? Who shall I be? What do I want? Every he- and in the I, in the in the first person voice, somebody can say, "I know what you are. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a this." But there's still, for me, automatically the question as a self-representing being spread out over time, whose self-representations have to kind of not just synchron at, at a moment integrate my life, but over time integrate my life into a story of my own. I think it just comes with the turf, and it's not elitist at all. It's it's like deeply humanistic to say that each of us is a self, and. and it just comes with selfhood to say, you get to ask, who am I going to be? What am I going to do? You get to plan your life. But you know what? I think we should let some callers in here to uh, to have a fourth voice. Uh, you're listening to Philosophy Talk, and we've got Barbara from San Francisco on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Barbara. Good morning. I have um, a new Buddhist practice for around three years, and it has given me great greatest peace that I've experienced. And would just like to... Uh, um, quote something from that, is that our habitual patterns and strategies that are the legacy of negative negativity, which we continuously re- repeat and reinforce. There are particular ways of seeing things, those tired old explanations of ourselves and the world around us that are quite mistaken, yet which we hold on, on to as authentic and so distort our whole view of reality. A spiritual path and examining ourselves honestly, it begins to dawn on us more and more that our perceptions are nothing more than a web of illusions. Well, Barbara, that's an interesting thing. Now, there's a lot there to respond to, Janine, but one of the things that connects up to a question we wanted to ask you know, there, 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 some neuroscience, some cognitive scientists we heard from Caitlin's report believe that the self is a kind of illusion. There isn't this kind of unity, at least not automatically. It's contingent. Buddhism has a complicated view about the self. I don't fully understand. The Buddha says the, the question, is there a self, is a question to which you shouldn't give an answer because neither the yes answer to, to the no answer is satisfactory. You should just not ask that question. Right, because Buddhists have some kind of problem with the self as this thing, and I mean, so there's two. There's a scientific tradition and a religious tradition that Barbara just uh, that uh, referred to that thinks of the self as some kind of illusion, some kind of problem, something to be overcome, something to be quietist about rather than affirmative about. What What do you think of all that? So there are two separable questions. Um, I think the first question about the cognitive science. Um, it has become popular nowadays to express what cognitive science is teaching about us about ourselves and our place in nature, as you said, in negative terms. That is, as showing that the notion of the self is an illusion generated by the brain. But I would put it rather differently. I think that's a tremendously misleading way of putting things. I think that what the science has shown largely vindicates every man's conception of what he is, but it replaces 
a misleading imaginative picture of the self as an inner object with a complex detailed and tremendously illuminating story about how selves arise in the sense of how these sorts of inner points of view are generated by the brain. I totally agree with you. Indeed, if you think of this, I think of the mind as a, a field of organized representations interacting in a certain complex way. And I think selfhood arises when you organize that field of inner representations in a certain way and you put a distinctive kind of representation, I representations, self-representations in there and give a role. And I don't think cognitive science has done anything to explode the idea that we're selves. Maybe exploded the idea that there is a Cartesian inner locus of immaterial something or other, but that... That was never the right conception. I think what you see here is very common in, in the history of philosophy and thought. You start with some with a concept that's that's rooted in common sense and, and common needs, like freedom or the self, me. Then you get a theological interpretation of it, usually abetted by philosophers, that 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 it's an immaterial thing or or uh something mysterious, and then you get maybe Buddhists who think about it, philosophers who think about it, or cognitive scientists who do research on it who say that mysterious thing isn't needed and isn't required. And then you kind of say, well, so there isn't a self, or so there isn't freedom. But what we should say is, no, this kind of theological conception of the soul shouldn't be confused with the working conception of the self that we all need and use. What do you think about that, Janan? You have a thought about that? I think that's exactly right. So oh, you got a thought about the Buddhist thing about, you know, the self is one of those, when asked, the Buddha said, when asked, what is the self? Uh, four categories of questions, the Buddhist, those that deserve an answer, those from which you can, uh, th- those to which you can draw an inference. I can't remember the other one, but the one, other one is there's the, the self falls into, questions about the self falls into the category of questions better not asked, right? Don't say yes, don't say no. Just don't ask it. Be quietist about it. You think there's anything to this Buddhist kind of? You know, I've often thought that I should um, try harder to understand the Buddhist thought about this. I think my first reaction is just that by the time you're uh, by the time you're asking the question, it, you're you're already on the scene. It's too late, and it seems almost psychologically irresistible for persons, or at least for philosophers, not to be asking those kinds of questions. So I'm not sure that I know what to say about that. Right. Except it's for for me and for many people a psychologically irresistible question to ask. No, but is that just so uh, you might think that's just a Western hang up, right? The self is a Western construct. I mean, it goes back. I mean, we've been talking about how the self gets constructed in the West through Christianity and and uh, and uh, and De- and Cartesian philosophy. You know, Foucault talks about technologies of the self because he thinks there are various ways that uh, we have uh, have constructed the selves using what he calls technologies of the self, and those are all kinds of social institutions and all this stuff that forms us. I mean, maybe the Buddhist is just saying all that technology of self formation that you. Westerners employ is just optional technology, and you you can you can either use that technology of the self or you cannot. And if you don't use that technology of the self, life will somehow be better. Well, we, we need to keep in mind there's lots of kinds of Buddhism. There's Zen Buddhism, which is you know pretty skeptical about these things. Tibetan Buddhism believes in reincarnation and 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 ways of uh, forms of memory that we don't recognize in the West. So so just that caveat. I think, uh, going back to what Ken said, I think 
you know, in a way, you you're acting as your own devil's advocate here, because I think those technologies are responses to a real need. Whenever you ask yourself, "What will I do?" you are partly asking yourself, "What do I want to be?" So you confront the question of, "What am I? What do I want to be?" Every time you make a choice. I to- again, I, I, I find myself agreeing with you so much today, Janan, uh, because <laughs> I, I, I like to distinguish a sort of metaphysical theory of selfhood from what I like to call the who am I question. The who am I question, what am I going to be? What am I going to do with this life? How am I going to plan it? And it's also the question, what have I been? Because I have to make sense exactly. in some way of the, of the path that I've lived. Well, have I been being a jerk? Have I been, is this been a journey of self-discovery or what? You know. And I just think it comes automatically with the who am I question. Who, who am I, is, arises automatically for a certain kind of creature creatures that ourselves and gives an opening to these what Foucault calls technologies of selfhood to, to play a role. I think that's right. It's so odd for me to be agreeing with Ken and disagreeing with you, John, because I think <laughs> of myself as having learned most of what I know about the self from you. Well, that's uh, 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 that puts me in an embarrassing position. Everything you've learned about the self from me is right, so there must be little accretions of your view that I'm disagreeing with. Uh, the usual insightful Greg Slater, who emails us a lot, uh, says something I don't agree with this time. He says, Buddha wasn't a neuroscientist, so we shouldn't listen to what he thinks the self is. But I think all three of us would agree that the neuroscientist isn't the only person who can tell Greg us about agree. the self. He I mean, says only. Uh, you didn't read three of us. I know, but you, you, you left out the tagline. Only neuroscientists have something interesting to say, I take about the self. No, that, I'm that's saying crazy, the three of Greg. us, but three of us, I mean you, me, and Janan, right. can all agree against Greg uh, that philosophers and Buddhists uh, uh, know a lot about the self through introspection, uh, through the study of language, not so much Buddha, but philosophers, and through the study of the way selves operate in the world. So can we end on that note of agreement? Absolutely. So, Jen, you want to give us one last thought about the self? Leave us with your closing thought. Oh, gosh, I don't know what to think. Um... <laughs> you, you don't have to have a closing thought. I will say that my closing thought is that you, you've got a great theory going. I, I, you and I are in deep, dis, uh, deep agreement. We should talk more about this sometime. And I'm going to thank you so much for joining us, Janan. Thank you again for having me. Our guest has been Janan Ismail. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona. She's author of The Situated Self, and she's one of our new, our new bloggers. She's going to be a constant voice on our Philosophy Talk blog, so you could go check it out where this this conversation also continues on our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is Cogito Ergo Blogo. I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page. And you can sign up to get the free weekly podcast of Philosophy Talk at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now... Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, looks deep and fast into his own self. Ian Scholes, the self is a weird thing. I can be self-destructive, self-aware. I can be utterly self-confident at the same time, be totally misplaced in that confidence, in which case I would be actually self-abusive. Am I self-righteous or true to myself? We often say of people, he would never do something like that, or that is so typical. How do we know? We recognize mass murderers in the news. By this description, he was quiet, kept to himself. Before the news, how do we not know? 
I always knew who I was from a young age. I knew I was going to be a writer. I wasn't always happy about it. I imagine others are the same. See, you always knew you were going to be an Olympic runner, but you didn't run very well. Like me as a writer wanting to win a Pulitzer. Probably not going to happen. So are me and the would-be Olympic runner just going to cry in our beer, or are we going to keep on plugging? I don't know. Ego death is supposed to be a good thing if you're a Buddhist, but not so good if you want to be a best-selling novelist. And what is the self these days? You have boys who grow up knowing they're really girls and vice versa. How do they know that? Some Catholics grow up knowing they're going to be priests or nuns. Some grow up to be Bill Maher. How do they know? When I was growing up, the self was portrayed in pop culture as something shed as easily as a shirt. All these British movies, usually written by Harold Pinter, where by the end of the movie, thanks to Freud, Marx, and psychedelic drugs, a butler and a lord would switch places. Not to mention brainwashing. Teen enlistees become communist snipers. Teen runaways take up with Manson and are soon running amok in suburbia. In the 60s and 70s, thanks to group therapy, feminism, and gay pride, we didn't know who the hell we were. And we all wound up voting for Ronald Reagan. And what about the recent burst of fake memoirs and false autobiographies with authors forced to confess to Oprah Winfrey? Some of them, apparently, are even writing memoirs about what it's like to write fake memoirs. And when did Oprah realize that she was Oprah? Did she always know? Was Steve Jobs always Steve Jobs? When legends retire, like Walter Cronkite, when he takes up nude sunbathing, for example, or something counter to what we perceive to be his self, does that destroy that self? Or does that self absorb it? Oh, he's that dignified newscaster who likes to sunbathe nude. I mean, we can't all be Saul on the road to Damascus getting an epiphany and suddenly you're not just some guy in the road, you're Paul, and you're telling the world and history just what Christianity is going to be. I wouldn't mind a gig like that. I guess I need a self-changing epiphany first, though. So, hello, fate, waiting on who I'm supposed to be. If I can be a Bible-quality prophet and a best-selling novelist and an Olympic runner, that would be great. Come on now. Time is running out. I got to go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Itran, Carola Kreitmar, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and also from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. <laughs>